Good morning and welcome. I'm Frances Gao and I am a member of the Board of Governors of the City Club of Chicago. Since its founding in 1903, the City Club of Chicago has been the premier public affairs, a public affairs forum in Chicago. Today, we are proud to present Michelle Morales. Michelle Morales is the president of the Woods Fund Chicago. She is a first generation US born Puerto Rican. Prior to the Woods Fund, she led the Illinois chapter of the Mikva Challenge, an organization that leads the field of civics by developing young people to become civically engaged and creating space for their civic participation and leadership. Michelle's background has been in the field of alternative education, focusing on and advocating for educational justice, first as a teacher at an alternative high school in Chicago's Humboldt Park, and then as associate director at the Alternative Schools Network. In addition, she was an active community organizer for 16 years in Chicago's Puerto Rican community. Michelle received a BA from DePaul University, a master's in special education from UIC, and a master's in educational leadership from Northeastern Illinois University. She is a fellow of Leadership Greater Chicago and had the honor of participating in the inaugural cohort of Cultivate, a woman of color leadership program developed by Woods Fund, Crossroads Fund, Chicago Community Trust, and the Chicago Foundation for Women. Without further ado, welcome, Michelle. Thank you, Frances, uh, and I'm so grateful to be here today with all of you, uh, and thank you everyone for taking the time to register to listen to my remarks. I wanted to thank uh, the City Club for having me, and to thank the Woods Fund Board of Directors, the staff of the Woods Fund, former Woods Fund Presidents Grace Ho and Deborah Harrington for supporting me in this role. Uh, and today I hope to share with you some of my thoughts on philanthropy, racial equity, and the historic moment that we're all witnessing. Um, but first, I wanted to start by conducting a land acknowledgement. This acknowledgement demonstrates a commitment to beginning the process of working to dismantle the ongoing legacies of settler colonialism and genocide. As the following land acknowledgement is read, I ask you to dig deeper and to challenge your thinking. I challenge you to find information about the tribes that call your area home, to read a book by a Native author, watch a Native film or documentary, or make a donation to a Native serving organization. Chicago is the traditional homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Ottawa, the Ojibwe, and the Potawatomi Nations. Many other tribes, like the Miami tribe, Ho-Chunk, Menomini, Sac, and Fat Box also call this area home. Located at the intersections of great several great waterways, the land naturally became a site of travel and healing for many tribes. American Indians continue to call this area home, and now Chicago is home to the sixth largest urban American Indian community that still practices their heritage, traditions, and care for the land and waterways. Today, Chicago continues to be a place that many um, that calls many people from diverse backgrounds to live here. And despite the many changes the city has experienced, both our American Indian and Woods Fund communities see the importance of the land and this place that has always been a home to many diverse backgrounds and perspectives. So I wanted to thank uh, Heather Miller, who's the executive director of the American Indian Center of Chicago for helping me uh, put the land acknowledgement together. And as Francis said, for those that don't know me, just a, a little bit more on the background of myself, uh, I think it's important to say that I am a first-generation U.S.-born Puerto Rican woman. Uh, and so that uh, lends it a unique experience growing up in this country with parents who migrated here from Puerto Rico. 
And I'm one of three Latinas in the city of Chicago who currently lead a private a foundation. Nine months ago, I transitioned from being a leader predominantly in the nonprofit sector to Woods Fund. Uh, and I, like everyone, right, what a roller coaster the last five, four and a half months have been. And while we may all reflect on the past couple of months and say things like, who knew? Who knew that we would be experiencing a global pandemic? And who knew that we would currently be witnessing the largest movement in U.S. history? I hope that one thing is for sure, that we all should have been aware and should have expected that the disparities that have been inflicted upon communities of colors for generation would result in the following. That in our state, Black residents account for 70% of COVID deaths, and 46% of the state's COVID infections lie in our Latinx communities. That the consistent murder of Black Americans at the hands of police officers would continue, and yet again has brought the reality of racism into the mainstream. I'm not going to use phrases like exposing racism or exposing disparities or anything like that, because I hope by now we have realized that racism is woven into the very fabric of our country. It has always been there and is with us every single day. And so I begin with these examples because I believe they're worth repeating and worth giving space to. And as a, as a nation, we're in a historic inflection point, one where longstanding inequities are being laid bare, so much so that mainstream pundits, the media, celebrities are using phrases like institutional racism, white supremacy, and racial equity. We are witnessing a narrative change, one that has the potential to become embedded in our everyday lexicon and can lead to culture change. But that culture change isn't, culture change isn't gonna come if we're throwing around these phrases carelessly and without any teeth, as my partner in justice and Angelique Power of the Field Foundation likes to say. So let's make sure that we're not using the language of racial equity to get back to business as usual, but to actually work in service of racial equity. And before I continue, and while I know that some, uh, some of you that are participating today know what racial equity means, I thought it'd be helpful to revisit its intent, since the phrase is being used so much so that it's starting to lose its power and its meaning. So racial equity means creating the societal conditions in which the distribution of resources and opportunities is neither determined nor predicted by race, racial bias, or racial ideology. That the structures, systems, practices, and cultural narratives in society provide true situational fairness and equal opportunity. That there is a democratic commitment to dismantle the false narrative of white supremacy and address the legal, political, social, cultural, and historical contributors to inequity. That families and individuals are able to thrive and flourish in the intersections of all aspects of their identity, including race, religion, gender, orientation, ability, and socioeconomic background. That the most vulnerable communities in our society have access to mechanisms to achieve social mobility and voice in naming their reality describing how these systems of oppression play out and developing solutions that draw upon their assets. And finally, that all people, cultures, and identities are equally valued and recognized under the belief that strength comes through diversity and expression in our shared humanity. 
And if part of racial equity and systems change is to acknowledge the existence of institutional and systemic racism, and not just a surface level acknowledgement, but a deep acknowledgement followed by action to create change, then to ignore the racism and white supremacy embedded in philanthropy is to ignore the pink elephant in the room. Let's remember that the history of philanthropy is not for the most part a history of pursuing justice and equity. Currently, over $800 billion are held in assets and foundations across the United States. And if we can have an honest conversation with ourselves, the endowments that sit in foundations are a result of the accumulation of wealth made off the backs of working people and sustained by a tax system that protects the interests of the wealthy above the interests of society. In 2018, charitable gifts added up to $428 billion dollars Much of this was given away with very little to no transparency or accountability. And as a whole, across the country, foundations face little to no accountability to the communities that they impact with this funding. We must recognize, those of us within and outside of the sector, that philanthropy shares culpability in producing and perpetuating entrenched systemic inequalities. That those same inequalities that have fueled, those are the same inequalities that have fueled the demonstrations and protests that we've been witnessing since Memorial Day, or since Memorial Day weekend. Now, don't get me wrong, there are definitely pockets of foundations doing extraordinary things to disrupt and to hold themselves accountable to the communities that they impact. But as a whole, the sector has to reconcile and reinvent its relationship to power and money. Our sector needs to acknowledge how it benefits from white privilege and commit to actively working to disable it before we can honestly and holistically support racial equity. Will Cordery in his beautiful article entitled Dear Philanthropy, These Are the Fires of Anti-Black Racism, reminded us that, quote, absent contingual vigilance, anti-blackness and white supremacy will sneak into organizational culture and practices. It shows up in the types of grants that are funded and how those groups must be structured. It shows up in how the work of grantee partners is evaluated and which ones are disproportionately criticized or praised. It shows up in the narrowing the focus of Black-led organizing efforts to specific program and project areas that fit specific and siloed grant-making portfolios. It shows up in the silencing and or removal of foundation staff that speak out against how white supremacy shows up in our philanthropic institutions. It shows up in the shuttering of entire grant-making programs and strategies that center Black people and people of color for the sake of issue-specific approaches, end quote. And it also shows up in the leaders we support. A May 2020 study conducted by Bridgespan and Echoing Green found that organizations led by people of color win less grant money and are trusted less to make decisions about how to spend those funds than groups with white leaders. The authors found that white-led groups had budgets that were 24% larger than those led by people of color. It also found that groups led by black women receive even less money than those led by black men or white women. Even when these nonprofits with leaders of color won grants there were still profound differences. The research, show, the research showed that the unrestricted assets of organizations with leaders of color were 76% smaller than those led by whites. This study also did not include the disparity in social capital. 
with white leaders often entering their positions with much more social capital than leaders of color. And we all know, or hopefully know, that how much social capital is needed when one has to fundraise for the livelihood of their organization. In our philanthropic practices, we tend to reinforce the white supremacist notions of merit by insisting that leadership exists only if it comes in traditional forms, rather than understanding that it's not really our role to define it. We insist on leaders with college degrees, I'm one of them, and many times multiple degrees, rather than leaders who are the product of their experiences of people facing oppression. And while we may not say these things publicly, these biases live in our applications, in our language of rigor, and in our evaluations frameworks. We live often by the myth that small people of color-led organizations are not ready for larger grants, the type of grants that would allow them to blossom into powerful organizations. And we tend to sustain a painful cycle in which we require organizations to ask for funds, to fill out applications, and to be reviewed. I left the nonprofit sector because I could not keep up with the fundraising game. I found it to be exhausting, triggering, and demoralizing. And there are even more disparities even within the nonprofit sector, with nonprofits dedicated to grassroots organizing receiving even less funds than those that provide direct services. In 2014, which was the most recent year for which this data was available, foundation grants for policy and advocacy work totaled only $2.6 billion throughout the entire country, which was only slightly, slightly more than 4% of the total $60.2 billion given that year. So there's nothing wrong with direct services. Uh, and often pro providing direct services is, um, is needed, right? Because our communities, the need is so great and our communities need so much. But what I hope we all remember is that much of the direct services and programs that exist are, exist because of systemic inequalities, right? That continue to prevail. Sometimes it feels like our sector seems very comfortable funding the results of racism instead of attacking the root cause of racism itself. You know, a question I often ask myself is why can't we fund both equally as a sector? They're both needed to move our communities forward. Uh, why do we pit one strategy over another? You know, activists are fighting for the survival, literally, of our democracy, the survival of our humanity, for community rooted in notions of belonging, economic justice, and racial equity. It's so important for us to reinforce those messages and narratives in all of our work and for philanthropic institutions committed to progressive values to make their funding decisions accordingly. And so this brings me to the incredible and profound historic moment that we're all witnessing. You know, the current uprisings echo another moment in our history. Six years ago, another murder of a black man prompted anger at a national scale, the murder of Michael Brown. Philanthropic organizations at that time were deeply moved as we are now, not only did philanthropy witness yet another horrific death of a black person at the hands of those that are supposed to protect the public, but it also witnessed the power of social movements when they're able to be nimble, responsive, and strategic. Again, we're witnessing that again. We have the privilege to witness that again. And at that time, philanthropy heard the call loud and clear, the call to action, which was fun movements, 
and movement infrastructure to advance racial justice. Tons of philanthropic institutions showed up. But unfortunately, it didn't take long for philanthropy to begin to shift its priority from funding people of color-led movements to funding specific interventions it thought it was best for communities of color. Now, for some of you, this may seem like a minor distinction, but it tends to show up in how we do philanthropy, so to speak, how we redirect the flow of resources to people of color-led organizing work, and then make determinations on what we think would be the best approach for that work. So less than three years after the death of Michael Brown, the philanthropic commitment for Black-led movement work and people of color movement work became undone. And here we are again. But let me just add that while the philanthropic commitment unraveled, the passion drive uh, of organizers of color did not, as we're witnessing. And just to throw one more example at you, during the civil rights movement, philanthropy made funding available for the fight to desegregate schools, but would not fund any work to end lynchings. This forced movement leaders to narrow their focus, again, moving from organizing often to direct service work. Foundations only offered short-term funding in response to certain incidences, but that support quickly fizzled out. And often, philanthropy Sometimes we tend to opt for rapid response grants rather than making the long-term commitment to advance movements and systems change. There's a saying that has made its way uh, in the last couple of months through social media that if Martin Luther King were alive today, philanthropy would not fund him or his work. So what do we do, my fellow philanthropic colleagues? Well, we should fund community grassroots organizing as a start. If you're on this call and you're in philanthropy, you've probably heard me say this in the past. And we should fund the hell out of it. As my partner, my other partner in justice, Jane Kimondo of the Crossroads Fund likes to say, we should fund them like we want them to win. If we expect to see racism dismantled, if we expect to see white supremacy eradicated, we have to fund racial justice work and organizing that centers power building to counter any anti-blackness. We have to fund racial justice work that centers the lived experiences, leadership, and communities of people of color. We have to fund spaces that foster a radical imagination and a creation of new, a new way of being. We have to acknowledge that our current way of being, our normal, is built on centuries of systemic and structural racist practices in our society. We have to be ready and willing to dismantle the racism and white supremacy that exists in all of our ranks. If it means that we have to restructure, then let's do it. If it means that we have to rework our portfolio, then let's do it. Let's do the hard work to envision a new future. Because organizers and activists are the true futurists among us. They work every day towards a worldview and a vision that does not exist. And a vision that many of us cannot even wrap our heads around. And we know what they want. They've been demanding over and over again that philanthropy, like I've mentioned, reimagine its relationship to money and power, that we do away with traditional philanthropic practices, that we align ourselves more to community. We're in a critical moment of crisis and transition, one where transformative change is possible because society at large has now seen the chasms, if you will, in our safety net. People are hungry for real change, profound change that will last. So now is not the time for pragmatism. It's the time to think radically, 
to hold space for ideas that we never once would have considered, to wholly change how we do business. So how do we as a sector use this moment to organize our institutions to align with racial equity, to reimagine and to do away with tradition and pragmatism? And as for Woods Fund, well, I'm gonna offer you some details of our funding. We're a private foundation with an endowment currently of 60 million, pre-pandemic it was 65 million. Our wealth came from the telecommunication and coal industries. We, we are proud to be one of six foundations in the city of Chicago that explicitly funds grassroots organizing and public policy advocacy. And we have a portfolio of 65 grantees. Our annual payout is 6% with about 2.7 million distributed annually in the form of general operating grants. During the pandemic, we increased our payout to 8% to provide emergency funding to grantees with budgets of 1 million or less. And we recently created a movement building fund which will be a two-year $500,000 grant to support movement building in the city of Chicago. But like everybody else, and for those that know me well, know how, how critical I am of all any work that I do, we've got work to do, right? We've heard the calls to action regarding funding more people of color-led organizations at higher amounts and reducing reactionary funding, which is short-term funding and just because a moment has arrived, and to reduce barriers to, to applying. Currently, our portfolio is made up of 60% people of color-led organizations and 40% white-led. And because it's so important to disaggregate data in that percentage of people of color-led organizations, Woods Fund supports 15 organizations led by Latinx leaders, 14 organizations led by Black leaders, six organizations led by Asian leaders, two organizations led by Palestinian Muslim leaders, and two organizations that have co-directorships of mixed races. Over the next two years, we will increase the number of people of color-led organizations in our portfolio from 60 to 75% and reduce the number of white-led organizations from 40 to 25%. In the future, for white-led organizations to receive funding from the Woods Fund, they must demonstrate diversity in their executive leadership and their board makeup. We will flip the script in how we fund, funding smaller organizations at higher levels, and we're working on restructuring our application and evaluation process to reduce the burden on organizations applying for funds. To those of you that are outside of the philanthropic sector, I encourage you and expect you to hold us accountable. And so I'll state it again, this is the time for us to use this catalytic moment to really create transformational change for America to, reach, to achieve a racially equitable democracy, power and resources will have to be changed in fundamental ways. Do we have the willpower to create this change? Or will we, as a sector and as a city, allow this moment to pass us by? And the bigger question is, will you, the public, let us? So, thank you. Thank you, Michelle. So now we have an opportunity for some questions and answers with uh, Michelle. If you have questions um, relating to her work or her discussion, please feel free to send them through and we'll select some to um, ask her. So let's start off with, uh, with one that uh, has been asked by, um, what that has been asked since Booker T. Washington and W.E.D. Du Bois disagreed over whether the path to racial equity lay through political power or through economic mobility. Michelle, is this debate still relevant today? 
I think so. I, for people who are not aware, there was a debate between Booker T. Washington and W.D. Uh, w. Uh, e. B. Du Bois around uh, uh, political action, a civil rights agenda, which was supported by Du Bois, and then um, uh, uh, Booker T. Washington that often said that um, to win the respects of whites, uh, African Americans needed to be fully accepted as citizens and integrated into all strata of society. I think what we have witnessed, and there's a lot to unpack there, but we have witnesses that often we have believed that the more and more that um, people of color are integrated into our economy, uh, then the more change we will see. And I think we're seeing that that is not the case. And that is not even the case as we see more people of color even voted into office. What we're still seeing is a profound disconnect in terms of the needs of, of, of communities and communities of color. Uh, it also plays into, I think, often the argument that happens around the model minority myth, right? That the more that, as a person of color, you integrate into the society, that you adopt the normative ways of being, the more you will be accepted, the more that you can advance change. Uh, and that's a discussion that even happens in organizing circles of how um, often, and this happens within um, undocumented organizing around undocumented immigration, uh, that there's often camps that will promote, right, the model immigrant, the immigrant that has not created harm or, or, or crime or things like that to separate, right, uh, and, and to reinforce the model minority myth. Um, and I say a myth because I think we have seen, and we've seen this from quote-unquote law-abiding citizens who are still harmed uh, by the racism that exists in our country. And, and, and for us to see change, we truly... It's, it's about undoing racism. It's about undoing white supremacy. It's about having a reckoning as a country uh, with uh, those elements that are still entrenched in our everyday practices. Thank you. LaShawn Jackson from the Circle Foundation asks, uh, what do you think is most important for leaders, particularly Black and Latino, to act upon in regard to the advancement of social justice of minorities? Uh, so LaShawn's an old friend of mine. We used to work together in the alternative education uh, system. Um, I, I, I think it's, it's a lot. One, it's aligning with community. Um, you know, uh, one thing that I wanna, uh, want the, the, those that are part of the call today to pay attention to is just because a person of color is in a position of leadership does not necessarily mean they align with community or that they are working in service of community, right? And so for those of us that are leaders of color, how can we make sure that we are more aligned with community, understanding the needs of the communities that we represent uh, and how to be vocal about those needs. Uh, I also hope as well that as leaders of color, we are also paying attention to our own organizations, how we internally embed racial equity, how we make sure that we are applying a racial equity lens internally and not just externally. Uh, I raised that point, actually, it was the staff at Mikva Challenge, my first year of leadership that really challenged me on that because I came in with some not so healthy notions of leadership uh, and how to manage staff. And they really pushed and challenged me on how to think radically different about who I was a, as a leader and how to lead an organization and how to do the hard work of embedding racial equity. Um, so when I, that's the answer I can think of when I, when I hear that question. Um, thank you. Uh, Catherine Rush, the executive director of partnership, uh, for education to educate and advance kids' uh, rights to speak up change to speed up change. How can we create partnerships between Black-led nonprofit organizations and White-led nonprofit organizations that have existing established revenue streams? So partnerships between the two. 
is yeah. what the question is asking. Um, so I think there's always, um, you know, the nonprofit sector in particular is always asked to collaborate. Uh, and I think that those partnerships are obviously crucial to moving systems change. I'm actually going to put the onus a little bit more on the white-led organizations. Uh, for systems change uh, uh, to happen and some of the things that I talked about in my remarks around eradicating racism and white supremacy, uh, white-led organizations should reach out. White-led organizations should see themselves as allies in the partnership, but should really put front and center uh, people of color and people of color-led organizations. Um, I think that in those type of partnerships, what tends to happen is, again, white-led organizations are given more credit are given more visibility than the black-led organizations within those partnerships, or there still tends to be a level of tokenizing. So um, yes, that needs to happen, but it needs to happen from a lens of allyship and how can white-led organizations work in true partnership with black-led organizations and even often maybe even taking the direction of the black-led organizations and the black-led, uh, the black leadership uh, to work in true service of, of community and people of color. Um, James Parsons from the Winston Foundation asks, now that you have experience as both a funder and a grantee, can you comment on how grant-making practices might be improved in order to enhance the benefits and impact of philanthropic dollars? Sorry, I'm giggling because there's all these friends asking me questions. Jim was a mentor of mine when I was at MICFA. Um, and, and, more, and more to come, too. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's been interesting on this side of the fence, for sure, and understanding grant making and understanding. Um, the only way I can explain this is I was very struck by uh, the rules that we live by in philanthropy that actually are not rules that have to exist, right? There are certain legal rules that we have to abide by. But by and large, the way we do grant making is up to the foundation. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things that we are going to begin talking about, um, we're a calendar year fiscal year at Woods Fund. So in 2021, we're going to start a strategic planning process. And we're going to talk about what would, what, what would it mean for Woods Fund to um, uh, completely align with a trust-based philanthropy approach. Uh, that's a slightly different approach for philanthropy. It's catching steam in some parts of the city uh, and a couple of foundations locally um, completely uh, abide by the, the principles of that type of, of philanthropic practices. But it really means how do you trust the organizations that you're funding to do the work that they're going to do and begin to remove barriers around the constant review process, the constant evaluations, um, the constant need to ask for data that we don't use that just sits around, and really making sure that what we ask of the organizations that we fund and support are being used to advance their issues, their causes, and their communities. Um, so that's what I've been wrestling with and thinking about and talking to other people about and talking to my team about is how can we move more so into that space um, as a foundation. I'm, I, because I don't come from philanthropy, I just want to get the money out the door as quickly as possible. But now, right, I'm learning about due diligence and things like that. But I'm still trying to push back and understand well, what is exactly the due diligence that we need and let's not create an undue amount of due diligence just so that we um, feel like we're um, uh, putting, you know, measures in place. And often that stems from sometimes a distrust of the organizations that are funded. Okay. Uh, Josh Shaw Myers, executive director of the Springboard Foundation, um, asks, 
However challenged philanthropy is, corporate philanthropy is even further behind. Mm. How do we lean on CSR to be partners with nonprofits in this work? Uh, and then there is a follow-up. So uh, let's go ahead and talk about that. And then I'll uh, ask the follow-up. Yeah. I don't know if I have an answer for that. It's been actually pretty interesting for me to see um, uh, the di- I had thought that all philanthropy was philanthropy uh, when I was in the nonprofit sector. And it's been interesting, again, now leading a, f- a private foundation, how um, separate, if you will, public and private foundations are from corporate um, foundations. And so I think a, a big first step is how can we work more in collaboration with each other? And how can we make sure that, one, we're inviting corporate philanthropy to the table, but that they are also coming to the table uh, so that we can work um, in in uh, collaboration and in concert with each other to further support the, the nonprofits that we are working with. I think also if, if corporate foundations were at the table more, and what I mean at the table, there's a ton of collaborative um, entities and practices in the philanthropic sector in Chicago, then there would they would be more exposed to these issues of racial equity and of white supremacy that we're discussing within the sector. Uh, I worry that um, that they're not a part of those conversations and that they're not taking that back. But I also think that, I mean, corporate Chicago has to reckon as well, just like uh, philanthropy does. They have to reckon with their practices and how their histor- their practices have done harm to communities of color, as we just witnessed from the articles around the current uh, banking and lending scandal uh, and how communities of color in Chicago were impacted by that. That's the best way I can answer that. <laughs> I think it's a great way of answering it. Um, the follow-up was uh, whether we can, um, whether there's some way to create some benchmarks for corporations in their um, uh, sponsorships and in their uh, philanthropic uh, direction and thinking. Well, I think what's, so, I mean, there are definitely frameworks that people can adopt, right? That, um, uh, you know, you guys are going to get sick of me saying this phrase that align with community, right? They can look at trust-based philanthropy. They can look at racial justice funding. There is, um, uh, let me scroll through my notes really quickly. There's a great um, uh, organization called the uh, Philanthropic Initiative for Racial Equity that has like tremendously tangible steps on how any foundation can align their grant making to racial justice. So that's two things. I think the the other part, though, is is in Chicago in general, and many of us within the sector, particularly those of us who are leaders of color of uh, philanthropies in the sector, are talking about is that there actually are not racial equity metrics. So everyone's throwing around racial equity. And in fact, we expect our grantees to adhere to racial equities, but there aren't actually metrics. Uh, and so we've been talking about how can how can there be um, something put in place where not only philanthropy knows that it's supporting initiatives that support racial equity, but that also that we, as I mentioned, are practicing racial equity, that we're adhering and being held accountable to that as well, so that we can start to see how we're moving the needle in systems change. So I think that's another layer of complication is that as much as racial equity has been thrown around, there's actually no metrics uh, that have been created in particularly in Chicago to be able to guide um, some of that work. I'd like to follow up on something you just said. Um, Based on your now really broad experience of many years in um, education and um, being uh, a grant making, uh, well now a grant making 
uh, with a grant-making entity, um, but also in uh, other public interest organizations. Um, what is the uh, frequency um, or typicality of organizations uh, doing this work, turning the internal lens on themselves and saying, are we doing all of the right things inside our organizations to ensure that there is racial equality inside uh, while, so that we're not engaging in a, a major hypocrisy? Yeah, I would say more so we, I would say more so folks are focused on the external. Uh, and not on the internal. I think I think you, if you followed social media or paid attention to social media during the um, when uh, George Floyd was um, murdered, unfortunately, and so many um, organizations and corporations put out statements, they got some pushback on Twitter around right some known practices or some known internal practices. Um, it's a big passion point of mine to ensure that the organization that I lead. Uh, that centers racial equity and grant making is as racially equitable internally. That's been a thing of mine since I worked at the Alternative High School uh, in Humble Park. So that means we have to look at our policies and procedures. We have to look at our compensation. We have to look at our benefits package, particularly if we have people of color on staff, right? If we, and I think in the nonprofit sector, because I definitely, um, uh, was guilty of this. And, and again, I still credit the MICFA challenge staff, my first year at MICFA 2015 for pushing me on this. You tend to fall into a scarcity mindset and one that honestly aligns with capitalism where you're constantly trying to save money. Uh, and obviously this is where, this is where philanthropy doesn't help, right? Because we don't fund sometimes in the way that that is needed. And so, um, you know, racial equity also means how are you creating the conditions internally? How are you creating policies and procedures that really reflect uh, racial equity? How are you creating a performance review process that reflects racial equity? How are you taking into account how racism has impacted your staff of color? How um, workplace trauma has impacted, the, impacted them? I just had a, a conversation with a colleague of mine who coaches, you know, she just informally coaches me and she said, Michelle, you have a tendency to ask for permission. You wait for permission. Well, that's trained in me. It's actually kind of beaten into me. I grew up asking for permission from very traditional Puerto Rican parents. And then in my work, for the most part, you didn't dare make a different move unless you asked for permission. And so I think we really have to pay attention to those things and not jump always to accountability. How do we lead with empathy first, understand how historic situations and experiences impact how people work in a workplace and create workplaces that truly welcome everyone, which also means us reckon reckoning with our own notions of leadership of, of skills, of talents, et cetera. Thank you. Um, speaking of friends asking you questions, um, so we have a question from Anne-Marie St. Germain, City Club <laughs> Board member. As you speak today, civil rights giant Representative John Lewis is being eulogized by President Barack Obama, along with others, honoring Lewis's legacy. Let's not give up no matter what. What can we um, as individuals do to help ensure true racial equality? I think we need to listen to organizers. I think that organizers and activists are close to the ground. 
they, one, are not only embedded in community, but often are representatives of their communities. I think we need to listen to what they're saying. I think we need to pay attention to what they're demanding and what they're asking for. You know, I think what comes to mind for me is um, how many people disparaged the phrase defund police. I saw this a lot on social media. A lot of uh, the marketing is all wrong. Their messaging is wrong without people really digging a little deeper to understand what it meant. Um, when we begin to do that, uh, two messages that come from the organizing space, we're already discrediting them. We're already saying that they're unrealistic. We're already saying that that could never happen. Uh, we're already applying a cynical lens to honestly the world that they're completely reimagining. Uh, and so I think we really need to, um, you know, again, challenge ourselves and really think like, why are we reacting in that way when we hear some of these uh, messages? I, I saw it all over social media, like these activists are act- asking for too much. Um, they're, they're, they're attacking everything. Well, because honestly, they're attacking our normalized way of being. And we have to question and ask ourselves, is that normalized way of being normal? And is it inclusive of everyone? So that, that's where I would leave. Um, we've been talking about really big picture issues and um, uh, the uh, very profound ideas about philanthropy. Uh, and now I'm going to ask you a question that is much more targeted um, to individuals. And uh, the question comes from Amelia Garza from uh, Russia University Medical Center. And her question is, what advice would you give to uh, junior level or younger Latinas hoping to succeed in the professional world? Mm. Ooh, there's, that, that could be a whole uh, topic onto itself. Uh, you can see, we have another hour. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I think um, it's, it's a couple of things. One, um, so one is to know that imposter syndrome is very real. Uh, and those of us who are leaders of color struggle with it every day. Uh, yours truly struggles with it every day. I say that because often imposter syndrome can sneak in and make us feel as though we're not worthy and as though we are not good enough. Uh, and that is not the case. And it takes a uh, a long time to understand sometimes that actually you present a different skill set, you present a different mindset, you may even present a different heart set than those that are around you and what has been accepted as traditional leadership, if you will, or traditional career and skills. skills. Um, I say that because as a Puerto Rican woman, I lead with community first. In fact, I've been critiqued for that. I've been critiqued that I care about my staff too much. I've been critiqued that I care about what um, my community and communities of color think about um, the organization that I'm leading. Um, and I think that many of us um, and, and other Latinos that I know, we tend to lead with community. We carry it, if you will, on our backs. We think about it constantly. We think about our families. We think about our, um, our, our neighbors, right? Or if we have kids, our kids. Um, but yet we're critiqued for it. Right. I've actually been critiqued by white colleagues that I shouldn't think that way because that way gets in the way of strategic thinking. So I encourage you to keep true to who you are. I encourage you to keep true to how you think you should lead. I've learned after 20 years of leading that I trust my gut more than what I trust people say. And if my gut is telling me literally, and I'm not joking, like if I start getting pain in my stomach, 
uh, that uh, it's something that I'm thinking or a decision I'm about to make isn't right, then it's not right. And it's gonna, it may be counter to what other people would do and that that's okay. And I think that for us to get comfortable with our way of leading, particularly as women of color, uh, that also though means like surrounding yourself with other women and other women of color who are either aspiring to become leaders or who are leaders that can mentor you and can offer you coaching because this work is hard and it is, you're constantly being challenged in the way that you present yourself and the way that you think um, in, 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 the, in the strategies that you present forward. And so that you're going to need sort of a tribe of other women and people that can support you through that process. Um, that actually um, leads right into another question we have, which really I think is a further elaboration of your answer. But Carmen Curet, the executive director of the Chicago Teachers Union Fund, um, said, I truly feel you on the asking for permission statement. Uh, with only three Latinx women in leadership in private foundations, what advice can you offer other Latinx women so they can prepare themselves for future leadership? Yeah, it's um, so Carmen is one of the three. So it's myself, Carmen and Maria Pesquera of the Healthy Communities Fund are the three Latinas who lead private foundations. And so, um, you know, I think as, as, as if you're preparing for a position of leadership, it's also really spending time reflecting uh, and reckoning with um, often the workplace trauma that we've experienced and how it shows up in your day-to-day work. Um, because it will, it will rear its ugly head in ways that you can't even imagine. Like I said, I've, I've been leading for uh, quite some time now, and I still have a hesitancy to just act like I'm waiting for permission from someone, right, from the invisible someone. Um, and so we really have to do the work, if you will. Um, and again, this is where your tribe, if you will, women can support you around challenging ourselves, right? And, and hopefully um, figuring out uh, ways to overcome sort of that embedded workplace trauma and sometimes imposter syndrome that can keep up, creep up. This is where, right, my colleague noticed that and pointed it out and challenged me on it. Uh, and she reminded me, right, and you need this too, and Carmen needs this. Carmen and I go back and forth about this all the time. You need people to remind you uh, how great you are, to be honest, because the world around us sometimes does not send us those messages and those signals. Sometimes we're getting signals that we're not so great. Um, and because a lot of those signals are embedded with right misogyny and racism. And so you need people to remind you what your skill sets are, what you're good at, um, you know, and what you may not and what you're not good at, because we don't want to be the type of leaders like we're emperor with no clothes and operating with a false sense of what our skill sets are, but a, a tribe of women, a tribe of, of people that can help sort these things out. Um, this tribe also, I will call them. I will text them when I've had a situation that I feel is racist or, you know, what, or just harmful. And I, I, they help me sort it out because sometimes it becomes so you just start to think, am I wrong? Did I say something wrong? Did I message something wrong? And often it's not you. It's the situation. It's, it's again, I, I'm going to keep saying this, just sort of the racism that we live, eat and breathe. Michelle, fear mongering is easy um, and it's capable of being um, uh, crammed into a soundbite. Uh, the ideas that we talk about relative to um, social equity and racial justice are big ideas and require a lot of discussion. Yeah. Um, how how do we how do we 
um, and how do organizations that do the type of work that you do um, combat this, uh, the short attention span, frankly, that uh, many people have, that they prefer a soundbite to yeah. the types of discussions that we need to engage in? Well, I think first, it, it, so right now, right, if we think about um, organ, organizers, right, and the messages that they're sending forward, uh, it is really um, often they're the only ones pushing that message out. So one of the things I had said in my remarks is how can all of us really um, reconcile with the narratives that are coming out of the organizing space and also help to push those messages out? That's how things become part of a mainstream uh, I was reading uh, an article, social media is another one because it helps with sort of attention span. And obviously, as we're all um, still, for the most part, practicing, hopefully, some shelter in place measures, even though I know we've re- reopened, um, we're on, many of us are still on social media. So that's another way to sort of create some narrative change and some uh, challenging uh, of, of, of traditional thinking. Um, I say that because when Trayvon Martin was killed, that was when um, I read an article, so hopefully I'm not misstating this, but that was when uh, the Black Lives Matters hashtag started to be used. And it, I think, was used, according to the article, like 146,000 times during, um, you know, the whole um, uh, news and et cetera around his murder and George Zimmerman. Uh, you fast forwarded to the... Um, international protests that were occurring over Memorial Day weekend uh, just a couple of months ago, and it was used over, I think, 8 million times, right? So part of this is really challenging ourselves when notions that we've never thought of, that we have a hard time wrestling with, are presented, and instead of pushing it away and saying that's crazy, we have to do some of the work ourselves to dig into it and to really research it and understand what's being asked for. Uh, and then the other part is obviously how can uh, we begin as, as a society to adopt a lot of those narratives. I think obviously, um, and I don't have a, you know, obviously it'd be great to get in person and talk with people. I think the pandemic obviously complicates things so much more in terms of people getting together and talking these issues out and really getting into shared understanding. Um, but that's kind of what I would start with. Um, I think we have time for one more question, so here goes. Andrea Durbin of Illinois Collaboration on Youth writes, um, I read and hear that white allies should follow the lead of people of color, lifting up and amplifying their voices. I also read and hear that white allies should take initiative to speak up and not leave the burden of of addressing racism to our colleagues of color. As a white woman who leads a nonprofit, I struggle uh, to know when to step back and when to step forward. I know I've made mistakes in trying to implement these imperatives. Do you have any advice for white allies? Sure. So I think it's really asking, right, of, um, so I'm going to use myself as an example, even though I'm not a white person, but I am a person in leadership. And so often, right, when we're at tables, when we're at collaborative tables, um, I will reach out to partners ahead of time that I know may not have the stature, if you will, of my position. Because I'm also mindful of what my position is, that as a president of a private foundation, and even though I'm a woman of color, in certain spaces, people will listen to me more than they will maybe a nonprofit leader, maybe a program officer, or a program manager at a nonprofit. And so what I would often do before any sort of conversation or anything like that, what do you need me to back you up on? 
What do you need me to say? Do I need to lead in a particular area and then turn it over to you? Do you are you going to say something that then you want me to chime in on and agree with? Um, so that then I'm supporting the message that is really being led by either a grantee, uh, a nonprofit, or a pers- uh, another leader of color. Um, and so I think you know adopting some of those practices of how can we? There are moments absolutely when. Um, you know, white people need to step up and combat racism. And partly, and that really is involved in when you see it, call it out. And often what happens is it's expected that the person of color calls it out, right? So where we need white allies is when you are seeing racist statements being done or practices that are embedded with racism or a white leader talking over a leader of color or whatever, that you use your whiteness to step in and say, wait a minute, you know, et cetera. And another way though, so there's that, but there's also how do we support leaders of color by supporting their messaging? And that's going to mean reaching out. That's going to mean understanding what their messaging is, understanding the why of their messaging, and then adding, you know, helping to support that messaging to push it forward. Because we still live in a society where leadership, you know, certain ranks of leadership, uh, are the, the messages from leaderships tend to be internalized more and the messages even from white leaders honestly are internalized even more so um hopefully that makes sense but andrea you're more than welcome to reach out we can have a separate longer conversation around this michelle thank you so much um everything you said was uh tremendously thought-provoking and it shows us how much work we all have to do um, and in appreciation of your coming here and sharing with us today, uh, we have a lovely parting prize for you, and that is a one-year uh, City Club membership so that you can come back and visit us more often. Yeah, so. And we look forward to seeing you. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, guys. I was wondering how we were going to do this on uh, video since I've attended a lot of City Clubs, and I was like, wait, am I going to get my one-year membership and my mug? And Yes, because I'm in the studio, I did get the one-year membership in the mug. So, <laughs> thank you. Right. Well, and and uh, hopefully you'll still be able to use that one-year membership when we're able to return to eat uh, lots of salads and uh, Italian food for lunch. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, thank you again. Uh, and thank you all for joining us today. Uh, our next announced event is uh, August 12th with Sam Toya, the president and CEO of the Illinois Restaurant Association. And then lastly, as you all know, um, in this time, it's uh, difficult to put together programs uh, and to um, uh, generate uh, sponsorships. And so there is a avenue for you, should you wish to, uh, to donate any amount of money um, to City Club's work, all of which will be um, gratefully and happily received. Uh, and with that, Thank you again for joining. Thank you, Michelle Morales, for coming and uh, doing this discussion with us. Uh, And we are adjourned.